Welcome to Conversations on Healthcare. This week, we welcome Tom Coderre, Deputy Assistant Secretary for Mental Health and Substance Use at SAMHSA on the rising mental health and substance use crisis in this country. When people talk about there being no options. That is not what you want to say to somebody who's suffering from mental illness. There are always options. There's always hope. Roy Robertson joins us from factcheck.org, and we end with a bright idea, improving health and well-being in everyday lives. Now, here are your hosts, Mark Maselli, and Margaret Flinter. May is National Mental Health Month, and this year it's particularly meaningful as new data emerges about the effect of the pandemic on our collective well-being. Tom Coderre is at the center of the U.S. efforts to recognize and to deal with these issues. He's the Acting Deputy Assistant Secretary for the Mental Health and Substance Use, also known as SAMHSA, the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration of the United States. Tom, welcome to Conversations on Healthcare. Thank you, Mark, and thank you, Margaret. It's great to be with you. Yeah, you know, we start with grim numbers. The National Center for Health Statistics recently reported that the U.S. had a record 100,000 drug overdoses in 2021, a 16% increase from previous year, and the excess of alcohol drinking uh, increased by 21% uh, during the pandemic. And the Biden administration is implementing a national drug control strategy. And this is the first time the government is prioritizing harm reduction. If we can ask you to set the record straight on what harm reduction is all about. Sure, Mark. Uh, thanks so much for the question. And, and first of all, uh, let me begin by acknowledging um, how tragic uh, those overdose deaths mm -hmm. that you talked about are. Um, those are not just statistics, as we know. Um, those are real people. Those are mothers and fathers and brothers and sisters um, who have been taken from us way too soon. And the overdose, overdose crisis in, in America is doing that month after month. And it's not just a crisis of one substance. Um, it's really an addiction crisis in our country, as you pointed out. And there are far too many people um, who turn to substances to change the way they feel um, because they've lost hope uh, or they are self-medicating uh, for some underlying condition that they may have. Uh, let's just talk a little bit about harm reduction because really that approach is really all about saving lives. Uh, harm reduction is a proactive and it's evidence-based. Um, it's to reduce the negative personal and public health impacts of any behaviors that are associated with alcohol and other substance use. And it, and it works at both the individual level and, and the community level. Um, and it's, as you pointed out, a very important part of the Biden-Harris administration's comprehensive approach uh, to addressing the crisis that we're in the middle of uh, through the bringing prevention, treatment, and recovery services um, to individuals where they are to help them work through their own goals, uh, to help bring them across the stages of change. Um, harm reduction incorporates a whole spectrum of strategies, again, uh, to meet people where they are, uh, on their own terms, and, and it serves as a pathway to additional prevention, treatment, and recovery services through um, really something that I think is important, uh, it's engagement, right? That's the thing, mm -hmm. that's one of the missing pieces often to the puzzle is that you don't just set up treatment and everybody shows up in treatment uh, and gets well. Um, you, it's, a, it's a process of engagement, bringing people across stages of change and helping them uh, try to find uh, out what their goals are in life, um, addressing the broader health and social issues um, through improved policies, programs, and practices. Tom, thank you for that. And uh, this is 
kind of a technical question maybe, but I, I think it gets to the importance of the program SAMHSA funds. We'd like you to explain to our listeners the Government and Performance Results Act tool, which oh I understand <laughs> is, I know, but good to understand. I know it's required of all programs, the SAMHSA funds. Uh, we've read that it's used to assess addiction program performance, but it's got some critics that say it's overbearing and the questions it asks people, we always worry about things that might be, you know, disincentives to people to participate. What is what is this act and the tool and, and what's your thoughts on this? Well, th well, thanks for asking, Margaret. It's, you know, it's, an, it's a law that was enacted a long time ago, back in 1993. Uh, and it's one of a series of laws that's really to improve governance performance management. Um, of course, the taxpayers are investing lots of money into these government programs and they wanna make sure that they're working. So GIPR requires agencies to engage in performance management tasks, uh, such as setting goals, measuring results uh, and reporting progress. And to comply with GIPRA, agencies produce strategic plans, uh, performance plans, and conduct gap analysis. And as part of this federal mandate, all of our SAMHSA grantees are required to collect and report performance data uh, using uh, approved measurement tools. And many of these tools, as you pointed out, and we heard this from our stakeholders, that they needed some relief from some of these tools. So how can we meet uh, them where they are uh, because they're doing important work in the community, uh, they're saving lives, they're offering effective prevention, treatment, and recovery services. We have the ability every few years uh, to update those questions, and that's exactly what we did. So we uh, have a new revised GIFR tool that's going into effect on October 1st, and the revised updated questions, people were able to make public comments, and we heard from you know, active additions, we heard from treatment professionals, harm reduction specialists, tribal communities, and lots of other stakeholders, and the public comments were reviewed, and we have the new tool as a result, and the new questions as a result of that. So hopefully that will reduce some of the burden that folks felt in the past. Tom, what a great perch that you have at SAMHSA as part of the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, uh, which engages with community partnerships, connects people to innovative and evidence-based practices. I'm wondering, what you could share with us about the excitement that's going out in the field, some of the best practices that you're seeing around the country. Well, SAMHSA has, as you all know, an evidence-based practice resource center. Uh, we have it on our website, it's available to all. And we have a way to uh, share and lift up some of the most uh, uh, significant evidence-based practices that are happening around the country. Mm -hmm. So we have things like tools for prescribing buprenorphine in primary care settings. We have information about prescription stimulant mixed use among youth and young adults, a guidebook on preventing marijuana, um, telehealth, which has obviously been a big mm -hmm. deal during the pandemic when everyone had to move to virtual platforms, even things like reducing vaping among youth and young adults. So we've seen lots of these evidence-based practices uh, being employed uh, around the country, and we're happy to be able to lift those up. We also uh, have seen practices like, you know, around buprenorphine training requirements, that at the start of the COVID pandemic, um, we had to relax the training requirements for practitioners who wanted to treat people who had an opioid use disorder, removing that barrier uh, that existed. As a result, we've seen more eligible practitioners sign up to be able to prescribe buprenorphine, which is an urgently needed medication to help people on their treatment pathway. 
equally important are peer recovery aids, uh, people who share their own journeys and strategies with others um, who are grappling uh, with their own cycles of substance use and peer supports play a really important role in the work of recovery. So um, we also uh, just embarked on uh, a listening session. Our Center for Substance Abuse Prevention had a series of listening sessions um, last year. And we learned that for some organizations, the pandemic was an opportunity uh, to be innovative in their use of technology, uh, to go beyond their existing practices. Uh, one organization, for example, uh, developed a mobile app uh, through which individuals could connect uh, with a confidential crisis phone line, chat with professionals uh, in the crisis intervention unit. So that was an important uh, tool. And we're transitioning uh, our National Suicide Prevention Lifeline uh, to a new three-digit yeah. number, 988. And so as we do that transition, uh, we see that as a first step toward a transformed crisis system in America. We're, we're making a $282 million investment uh, to the transition to the lifeline. Um, but the implementation is going to depend significantly on our partners and our stakeholders at the state, tribal, and local levels uh, as we seek to help transform what historically has been an underfunded and fragmented system. So we value the support and contributions of our partners at the community level when we're making these uh, innovations. Well, just want to emphasize how appreciated and valuable the changes to the training requirements were, uh, and that at the community level, everyone's certainly focused on getting the information uh, about thank the crisis number out to the public. So thank you so much for thank your work you, on Mark. that. No, thank you, Mark. Thank you for that. Yeah. For and and I want to go back to uh, data, uh, data in the interest of, of the most critical issue, which is preventing these fatal overdoses. Um, we know that uh, the best predictor, perhaps the best predictor of a fatal overdose is a prior non-fatal overdose. That's why we so prioritize anyone seen in the ER brought in by the EMS folks. But there isn't a way to measure non-fatal overdoses overall. Do you have any initiatives in the work for that so that we can uh, do a better job of preventing the fatal overdoses? Yeah, this is a really difficult question. And of course, there are uh, non-fatal overdoses that happen that we know about. Uh, because law enforcement responds or somebody ends up in an emergency room. Uh, but then there's a lot of non-fatal orders that we don't know anything about uh, because uh, we have deployed so much naloxone into communities um, that it's really hard to track when somebody has a non-fatal overdose there. So that data becomes really difficult to collect. Um, we're lucky that we have things like OD map, which uh, first responders use to enter data in real time into a system so that Law enforcement can help track across counties, states, um, where there are hot spots so that they know if something's happening and then they can respond immediately. Uh, SAMHSA has uh, our system called DAWN, our drug abuse warning network, because we agree that non-fatal overdose data holds value in providing public health surveillance. So our DAWN involves a network of hospitals providing us data about patients who present to their emergency departments. Um, with conditions related to substance use. So because other surveillance tools that we um, have, like our flagship NISDA, our National Survey on Drug Use and Health, that data lags behind. And by the time we get that data, it's not really helpful in real time to help us respond. You know, one of the things that I think we really have to do here is work with state and county level folks, um, because a lot of these, these um, systems um, have to be employed there. Um, we have state laws, um, and we have county coroners and, and we even have municipal, municipal uh, rules that are in place that these partnerships have to be developed 
and perhaps SAMHSA has a role in helping uh, provide resources to get these data systems up and running around the country so that we can get a better uh, sense of when these non-fatal overdoses happen so we can respond more quickly. Tom, we see the Biden administration stresses the word unity and highlights bipartisanship in this effort. And, but there are disagreements. Republicans in states such as West Virginia and Indiana have shut down needle exchange programs. Donald Trump's Surgeon General recently said, Republicans are more likely to believe addiction is a moral failing than a treatable disease. How do you balance all of these? And what do you say when you hear people express these views or take these actions? Well, I'm not a political appointee anymore, Mark. So, you know, we are in a polarized moment in our history. So mm -hmm. we have to be careful uh, that that doesn't seep into uh, this space and get in yeah. the way of us helping advance behavioral health and save lives. Um, but what I do know uh, is that for mental illness and substance use disorder, it's probably the one issue on Capitol Hill and in state houses where there's the most bipartisan support. Um, mental illness and substance use disorders don't discriminate. Uh, they don't have party, party labels and, and Congress is working together to provide resources that are so desperately needed. Uh, so there'll always be disagreements on the margins, but on the big things, uh, there's a lot of agreement and there's a lot of people working together. Of course, SAMHSA's priority is connecting people to effective treatments and supports uh, because we know that recovery is real and it's possible for everyone. Well, Tom, I uh, think it's safe to say that uh, none of us believe you could really put a dollar figure on the uh, total cost of the opioid crisis to the United States. I think it's incalculable, but the experts say maybe a trillion dollars each year. Uh, and there's a recent financial settlement with the Sackler family, which controlled uh, Purdue Pharma, the maker of OxyContin. And that settlement, I believe, is $6 billion, which is supposed to be uh, devoted to addressing the epidemic. Uh, we all remember the tobacco settlement money and, and certainly some uh, criticisms that uh, there was too much lost opportunity to really curb smoking uh, with those funds. How do we do our best to ensure that the money funds what we have evidence really works uh, to reduce overdose from opioids? Yeah, that's a great question. And it's, it's on the minds of so many Americans, um, especially people who were harmed by companies who had you know, who had a, um, a moral obligation uh, to be good stewards of, of these products. And so um, that will get decided in courts. And there are plenty of outside groups who are looking at this and they're making recommendations. Georgetown University recently held a roundtable with people from all, all parts of the field about how these resources uh, should be spent and uh, that these settlement monies go to things um, that really help mitigate uh, the ongoing crisis. But what I can say about SAMHSA is that um, we have a budget uh, request into Congress of more than $10 billion. And with this urgent need uh, being faced throughout the country and throughout our communities, we need that money more than ever. Uh, programs funded by SAMHSA, which prioritize connecting people to treatment for substance use disorders and mental health conditions um, have never been as crucial as they are now. Uh, especially given the toll that the COVID-19 pandemic has had on all Americans. I mean, we've seen an exacerbation, right, of people who had mild anxiety and depression. Now it's moderate or severe. We've seen substance use um, continue to rise. And so these resources really will help us uh, connect people to the help that they need. Well, both of them are, are very important. The settlement, that, that will be good news. And, but there is hope. And you've testified 
before the Senate that there are at least 22 million Americans who've resolved their issues with addiction, but there are so many roots as well to that recovery. Uh, what does the research tell us about what, what works right now? Well, there's a, there's a lot of evidence about what works. And I was really proud uh, to be involved uh, back in the Obama administration on a 2016 Surgeon General's report on alcohol, drugs, and health. Mm -hmm. And for those of you who are familiar with Surgeon General's reports, they review the current evidence. Uh, and that uh, report had several chapters, one on neurobiology, one on prevention, one on treatment, one on recovery support, and one on health systems uh, that really walked through and even though it's a couple of years old, it's pretty timely. Uh, there's you know, no cookie cutter approaches to treating substance use disorder. It's very individualized. And SAMHSA's role is to make sure that there are multiple entry points uh, to effective evidence-based treatments and recovery supports. There are also, uh, as you pointed out, many pathways. A lot of times people conflate um, a 12-step group with clinical treatment. And the two are very, very different. There's a big difference between uh, the two. One really is about managing one's uh, symptoms uh, of their substance use disorder. Uh, and the other one is um, a peer support that extends beyond um, those acute symptoms, right? Uh, when we talk about addiction being a chronic condition uh, that needs to be managed over someone's lifetime, um, that's really where 12 step groups and other peer support related activities, which I have been the beneficiary of myself, uh, where they come in and then they can help that person uh, sustain their recovery for the long term. And I think that's really important. Well, Tom, many of us uh, have read the sad story uh, over recent days in the media about the suicide of country singer uh, Naomi Judd. And she spoke very publicly uh, for years about her uh, struggle with depression. And she referred to it as, and her family did, I believe, as treatment resistant depression. Um, I, I wonder, are you, are you worried that this leaves people thinking that that means there are no options if they have this diagnosis? Uh, and, and I'll add that Dr. Tom Insel just told us there are still options, even if someone carries this label of treatment-resistant depression. What's, what's your thoughts on that? How does that land with the public? First of all, about Naomi Judd, that's, um, her story is heartbreaking yeah. um, to me and, and, and many, many Americans. Uh, that one day before she was about to be inducted mm -hmm. into the Hall of Fame, uh, that she succumbed to her uh, illness, and that was tragic. Uh, and, and at SAMHSA, it's really our role to promote uh, options as broadly as we can and to seize every opportunity to make sure that people uh, know where to look and to get connected uh, to treatments and supports. We know recovery is possible, it's real, it's for everyone. Uh, and so my message would be, uh, not to lose hope. Um, I think, you know, when people talk about there being no options, that is, that is not what you want to say to somebody who's suffering uh, from mental illness. There are always options. There's always hope. There's always support. There's always something else to try. Um, and uh, so we cannot give up on any individual um, and we can't be sending the message to any individual um, that we don't have the, the support that they need. Tom, you talked a, a few minutes ago about the, the, your own journey, uh, and you've been very open about sharing that, and it's very inspiring uh, to those of us who have heard it. But I'm wondering if, you, if we could ask you to share what you'd like uh, uh, so others can learn uh, and better understand um, uh, the journey that people uh, 
go through to uh, get on the other side? Well, sure. I mean, thanks so much for asking that. Uh, we're taping this on May 16th. And uh, yesterday, May 15th, was my 19th, 19th recovery right. anniversary, believe it or not, just mm. yesterday. So uh, for me, this is personal. Uh, I'm passionate about it. Save, recovery has saved my life and actually given me uh, a life that uh, beyond my wildest dreams that I could never have imagined. You know, I went through a very uh, public battle uh, with addiction. I was a state senator from Rhode Island. I served eight years in the state Senate. Um, I, you know, developed a issue with alcohol and other drugs, uh, and it ended up costing me everything. I ended up losing my position in the Senate. I lost my job uh, as a nonprofit uh, executive. I, um, you know, my family and friends tried to help. I resisted their help. I pushed them away. Uh, that caused me to lose them, you know, and eventually, you know, I, that hope I spoke about earlier, I lost uh, that hope. But fortunately, um, I was able to get the help that I, that I needed. And today I'm a person in long-term recovery, which for me means I haven't used alcohol or drugs uh, since May 15th of 2003. And I've been able to not just create a better life for myself, uh, but I've been able to create a better life for my family uh, and ultimately my entire community, because that's what happens when people find it to sustain their recovery. I had access to um, a long-term residential treatment program, um, psychiatric services, uh, which I needed. And then um, what SAMHSA likes to call the four dimensions of recovery, um, health, home, purpose, and community. Um, that's how we build a life in the community for everyone by making sure that the social determinants of health are not ignored, uh, that people have access. I was able to go back to school and finish a bachelor's degree. Uh, I was able to get employment eventually, re-employed to, uh, get my family back in my life. That family, I said, I pushed away um, and resisted their help. They came back into my life. Uh, my mom, my dad, my brother, my sister, uh, my nieces and nephews uh, got to have their, you know, got to have their family member back. And that was critically important for me as well. And so uh, I've been really fortunate to be able to get into this space um, and match, you know, my love for politics and public policy uh, with my passion for recovery. Um, and being able to help other people find what I've found. So it's been a truly uh, a, a blessing and something um, that I'm so uh, excited about. Well, Tom, thank you for sharing your story. Uh, thank you for your service to the country and for your leadership in this most critical uh, area that our country faces. Lots to do, and we join you in your fight. Thank you also to our audience for joining us today. And you can learn more about conversations on healthcare and sign up for our email updates at chcradio.com. Tom, thank you so much again for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Conversations on Healthcare, we want our audience to be truly in the know when it comes to the facts about healthcare reform and policy. Lori Robertson is an award-winning journalist and managing editor of factcheck.org, a nonpartisan, nonprofit consumer advocate for voters that aim to reduce the level of deception in U.S. politics. Lori, what have you got for us this week? Paxlovid is an antiviral pill that is the preferred treatment for non-hospitalized, high-risk COVID-19 patients. While it was tough to find after being authorized by the Food and Drug Administration at the end of 2021, it's no longer in such short supply. Paxlovid is the brand name of Pfizer's oral antiviral treatment for COVID-19. 
It consists of two sets of pills that are taken together. The primary pill prevents replication of SARS-CoV-2, the virus that causes COVID-19. The second pill slows the breakdown of the primary drug in the liver to boost levels of that drug in the blood. The standard course is to take a total of 30 pills over the course of five days. As an antiviral, Paxlovid should be taken as soon as possible after someone gets sick, and it is not meant for people who are already hospitalized for COVID-19. A randomized controlled trial found the drug was about 88% effective in preventing hospitalization and death in unvaccinated high-risk adults with COVID-19. The trial included about 2,200 non-hospitalized participants with symptomatic COVID-19 who were neither vaccinated nor previously infected. All were either 60 years old or older or had at least one chronic medical condition that put them at higher risk of developing severe COVID-19. There were no major safety concerns in the trial. Possible side effects include a temporary altered sense of taste, diarrhea, and vomiting. The drug does pose risks to some people with liver or kidney disease. Multiple experts told us it's likely Paxlovid has at least some benefit in vaccinated people. The full results of the Pfizer trial likely to be released later this year or from a University of Oxford clinical trial that is now studying Paxlovid and is open to participants regardless of vaccination status. That's my fact check for this week. I'm Lori Robertson, Managing Editor of FactCheck.org. FactCheck.org is committed to factual accuracy from the country's major political players and is a project of the Annenberg Public Policy Center at the University of Pennsylvania. If you have a fact that you'd like checked, email us at chcradio.com. We'll have FactCheck.org's Lori Robertson check it out for you here on Conversations on Healthcare. Each week, Conversations highlights a bright idea about how to make wellness a part of our communities and everyday lives. One in five Americans will suffer a diagnosable mental health condition in a given year. For those with serious mental health conditions, the consequences can be devastating. Loss of job or home or even early death. Seeing a rise in mobile apps aimed at behavioral health entering the marketplace, University of Washington researcher Drar Zev thought a comparative effective analysis study would be a good idea. My team and I conducted a three-year comparative effectiveness trial, having a a head-to-head comparison between a mobile health intervention for people with serious mental illness called FOCUS and a more traditional clinic-based group intervention. So the study really gets at some of the core differences between mobile health and clinic-based care. Is there something about the mobile health approach that would make it more accessible or less accessible over time? More than 90% of the mobile app group engaged in the online program, along with weekly call-ins with a behavioral health clinician. The second thing we wanted to see is after people complete care, what are their subjective ratings of their experience in treatment? Are they satisfied with both interventions? And probably the most important piece of the study are the clinical outcomes. So we measure to see whether involvement in both interventions for a 12-week period, would that create some sort of difference in psychiatric symptom severity and quality of life? And 90% of the individuals who were randomized into the mobile health arm actually went on to meet a mobile health specialist and used the intervention app that's assigned to them at least once. Whereas in the clinic-based arm, we saw that only 58% of the participants assigned to that clinic-based intervention 
ever made it in for a single session. Both groups of patients saw roughly equal results from their completed treatment, but the mobile group was more likely to engage in therapy. The group dynamic, a sense of shared experience and perhaps even normalization of some of the experience, that on its own is quite potent for people, right? And so we know that the very existence of a group can be quite helpful. But for others, the interaction is anxiety-provoking. A targeted mobile app aimed at facilitating access to clinical care for those experiencing serious mental illness symptoms, proving equally effective in managing the condition, improving access to intervention for behavioral health needs. Now that's a bright idea. You've been listening to Conversations on Healthcare. I'm Mark Maselli. And I'm Margaret Flinter. Peace and health. Conversations on Healthcare is recorded at WESU at Wesleyan University, streaming live at chcradio.com, iTunes, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you have comments, please email us at chcradio at chc1.com or find us on Facebook or Twitter. We love hearing from you. The show is brought to you by the Community Health Center.